Good morning. It was about a month ago when Dwayne asked me if I would be available to preach this Sunday because both he and Pastor David would be absent. And immediately, we're sitting in his office when he asked me this, immediately my mind just goes to another place. Of course I was going to say yes, but I just thought, oh, you know, we could explore that, or we could look at this, or we could, here's the good news here. And I just got so excited. And uh, he's talking, talking, talking. See, it had been about five years in church, and I've been doing campus ministry. So I had to, um, do you have me now? Okay. <laughs> Maybe if I don't move. Uh, had a lot of opportunities to teach and lecture, but it had been five years since I preached, and I love the Word of God, and I love preaching the Word of God. So... Dwayne breaks into my reverie and says, oh, and by the way, we'll be in the middle of a series on angels, and your topic will be fallen angels. I can't really express what went through my mind at that instant, um, but I think it was like, what? (laughs) Say, Say that again, fallen angels? I haven't preached in five years, and that's the topic I get. Awesome. Thanks, Dwayne. Good thing we're friends. Um, But the next two days, I spent my mind just kind of tumbling like a dryer, thinking, how in the world am I going to present this topic in a way that is clear, helpful, and encouraging? The topic of angels is challenging in general because many of us are leery of the so-called spiritual world and skeptical of those angels that are said to inhabit it. And our culture, this culture that we live in, overwhelming evidence for us to accept the existence of things that we can't see. So if you or none of us have had a run-in with an angel, and we don't know a trustworthy person who has, then we're going to remain skeptical. Dwayne reminds us regularly that scripture is our authority, and he and David have spent the last two weeks showing us that the existence and work of angels is a biblical reality. Maybe now we're growing a bit more comfortable with accepting their existence. But that's the good angels. Those are God's angels. Today we have the added challenge to confront the existence and work of what are often called fallen angels, meaning morally corrupt angels. And as we'll see in scripture, they're usually referred to as demons or evil spirits. We're going to spend this morning taking a survey of various passages that tell us about the existence, nature, and work of these angels. However, I can't just start our discussion with demons. That would be more than me putting the cart before the horse. That would be like me trying to pull the cart myself, you know, straining, trying to pull it along when I'm pretending that there isn't already a very powerful horse hitched up to our cart. And that horse that I'm alluding to is Satan. Satan is the first fallen angel and the leader of all the demons. It's the master that determines the work of the servants. So to understand what demons are all about, we have to take a closer look at their master, Satan. Now, I, I don't know if any of us are excited about learning about Satan and the work of his angels, 
Because these are grim and sometimes frightening topics, often avoided in churches, because it sounds like very bad news to hear in a place where we come to worship and to hear the good news of Jesus. So I have to ask you to stick with me. We're going to draw a biblical picture of Satan and his angels. But I promise that I won't let you leave here today feeling intimidated or fearful. I grew up hearing messages of fire and brimstone. And uh, I'm not going to let you leave here just shaking in your boots. So instead, I'm going to show you that while Satan and his demons are real and powerful, as Christians, we're able to stand tall in the knowledge and love of Jesus. So let's get to work. Where did Satan come from? How did he get to be Satan? Naturally, these might be the first questions we would ask. But they're also the most difficult to answer. The presence of Satan is an assumed reality in Scripture as early as Genesis 3. And there isn't one passage in Scripture that clearly and fully explains how Satan got to be Satan. Instead, what we know of Satan is the result of short verses and cryptic passages woven together. In Luke 10.18, Jesus says, I saw an angel fall like lightning from heaven. 1 John 3.8 tells us that Satan has been sinning from the beginning. Various verses in both the Old and New Testaments tell us that God created angels as sinless beings meant to worship and serve God. We've already learned in this series that the angels were created with free will. Now, verses about Satan and angels woven together with biblical theology about God, sin, creation, all of this helps the church develop a doctrine of Satan as early as the second century. And the doctrine has remained mostly the same since then, though the passages that are used to support the doctrine are sometimes debated. Though we can't piece together a you know, full-color, 3D biblical film of how Satan came to be, and how he fell, Scripture does assume an event when Satan went from a sinless angel of God to the adversary of God. In fact, the name Satan means adversary. Satan first appears in the Bible as a crafty serpent slithering through the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The serpent coaxes Adam and Eve to eat fruit from the one tree that God told them to stay away from. Swayed by the serpent's logic, Adam and Eve disobey God's command, and they eat that fruit. This event signals humanity's fall from a perfect place of communion with God to being separated from God by sin. And this story reveals Satan's fundamental goal. It's one that we'll see in here repeatedly throughout Scripture. Satan's goal is to separate people from God. And he has tons of methods to do this. The method that we see Satan use in Genesis 3 is one of his most common. Satan. If Satan can tempt people to sin against God repeatedly, then time after time he's going to drive a wedge after wedge after wedge between God and the people that he loves. The next time we're going to see Satan in a starring role is in the book of Job. The story is Satan enters the presence of the Lord and his angels. Satan and God have a conversation uh, where 
about Job, a man who's described in Scripture as blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Satan, on the other hand, doesn't think Job's so great. In fact, the devil says that Job would curse the Lord if God took away everything that Job had, all the things he'd been blessed with, his work, his flocks, his servants, even his children. In verse 12, the Lord says to Satan, Very well then, everything that he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Satan proceeds to strip Job of all of his valuable possessions. But Job refuses to curse God. In chapter 2, God and Satan have another conversation where God allows Satan to take away Job's health. Satan afflicts Job with a horribly painful sores all over his body. And God's one condition is that Job, excuse me, that Satan had to spare Job's life. The story reveals another one of Satan's primary goals. Satan will do anything he can to destroy human trust in God. It's clear that Satan has many methods at his disposal to do this. And what strikes me the most is that Satan has the power to inflict terrible suffering on people, even those who love and serve God. In Job's story, the devil was able to incite two different people groups, to raid Job's land, steal all of his cattle, and kill all of his servants. The devil caused a fire to burn up, and it burned up all of Job's sheep and his shepherds. Satan sent a mighty wind to knock down a house, and it crushed Job's children. Finally, Satan even had the power to afflict Job with a disease, inciting violence, controlling wind and fire, causing disease and death. That is immense power. But the book of Job isn't the only place where we see Satan causing suffering. Luke 13 tells the story of a woman whose back had been crippled for 18 years by a spirit. And Jesus explains to the crowds that were near that Satan was the one who had kept her bound all those years. Does anyone remember what happened when Jesus healed this woman? Luke tells us that immediately she straightened up and praised God. You see, another one of Satan's goals is to keep people from praising God. Last week, Duane taught us that God's angels, they provide and protect for God's people, and that their work always has to do with the redemptive plan of God. Satan, on the other hand, as the adversary of God, will do anything he can, use every possible method and that he can think of to keep people from loving, obeying, praising, and following God. Satan is anti-God and anti-God's redemptive plan. That's why he tried to tempt Jesus when Jesus was at his most vulnerable He'd be, he's hungry and tired after 40 days alone in a hot, hot desert. Satan was desperate to break Jesus down and tear him away from the Father so that salvation couldn't be accomplished at the cross. Well, most of us know how that story ends. Jesus resists the devil, and Satan flees the scene. But he didn't give up his anti-redemption campaign. 
Satan's next move in the Gospels is to prompt Judas to betray Jesus. And this time, he succeeds. It's clear that Satan will do anything to thwart God's redemptive plan. Unfortunately for us, for everyone, Satan didn't retire when Jesus won the battle against sin and death through the cross and resurrection. Satan is what I'd call tenacious. He's not going to give up his epic battle against the one true God. That means that early Christians were under constant fire once Jesus returned to heaven. If you were here with us when we studied the, uh, the book of James, Duane constantly told us every week, remember, guns are blazing, bullets are flying. That was what it was like for the early Christians. In fact, Satan is such a menace in the early church that every New Testament writer talks about the presence or work of the devil. Paul writes extensively to the early churches and the Christians that he's mentoring, warning them about Satan's wicked schemes. In his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul tells them that Satan will do anything to deceive people into thinking that he, Satan, is God. To the Corinthians, he writes that Satan is the one who blinds the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of Christ. But the most important thing that we need to understand about Satan, perhaps the most dangerous of all his methods to separate humans from God is this. Satan is such a master at deception that he can convince people he's good. Let's take a look at what Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians. And I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such persons are false prophets, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. I don't know about you, but I think that this is the most disconcerting, perhaps even frightening, weapon in Satan's arsenal. That he's able to convince people that he's one of the good guys, one of God's good angels. And once he's entrapped someone, he stealthily turns their hearts and minds away from God. In my mind, this makes Satan the chief abuser. You see, a terrible skill of some abusive people is their ability to trick others into thinking that they're, well, good. Abusive people can be experts at masking their destructive behavior. They can twist the minds of the intelligent people that they abuse into believing that the abuse is deserved. Now, I've personally known and works with an abusive person who I'll call Tim. The scariest part of to maintain a facade of being kind, compassionate, and a selfless man of God. Now, he had all of his friends and co-workers tricked into believing that that was who he was. But just a few weeks into his job, Tim made a big mistake at work. And as his supervisor, I had to confront him. Not used to someone questioning his work, Tim then began to direct his abuse 
toward me. In hindsight, I can recognize how Tim would use compliments and affirmation to manipulate my feelings toward him. But then he would both verbally and emotionally beat me down with untrue criticism. Tim spread rumors about me to our coworkers and complained about me to my supervisor. And I'm, I, at the time, I was a, a reasonably uh, intelligent and emotionally term, mature woman, but Tim's abuse had the power to weaken my self-confidence and make me doubt the sincerity of my faith. That is the horror of the work of Satan. He can convince us that what is false is true, what is bad is good, and that destructive behaviors and choices will build us up. The master's deceiver can alter the very foundations of our lives. He grinds the rock beneath our feet, and we feel like we're at the top of the world, even while we're sinking. Unfortunately, Satan isn't alone in this terrible work against humanity. Scripture tells us that Satan is the leader of a large number of fallen angels or demons. Satan is called their prince. The goal of the demons is simply this, to help Satan separate humans from God. In the Bible, demons have all kinds of tactics that they use to tear people away from God. But the method that's most common, especially in the New Testament, is possession. You might remember a story in Mark 5 where a demon-possessed man lived among the tombs. The people who lived near the tombs feared what this man might do, so they bound his hand and feet with iron chains. But the text indicates that with the demon's strength, he was able to break the chains every time. The story says that night and day, the man would cry out and cut himself with stones. Let's pick up the story where Jesus arrives. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Here we see a case of a man, one man, who's possessed by a large number of demons. That's not where the story ends, of course, but we're going to come back to it later. Possession isn't the only method that demons use to separate people from God. There are biblical counts of physical attacks and disease. Satan's evil helpers also promote false teaching, idolatry, disobedience, and they cause division in the church. This is the work of the fallen angels who serve their corrupt master, Satan. Now we have a good biblical picture of Satan and his angels. We understand what they do and why, but some of us still may be wondering what all of this has to do with us. The events in the Bible happened a long time ago, and the presence and work of demons seems far less apparent in our culture today than it did in biblical times. So we wonder, are there fallen angels in our world? If so, where are these demons and what are they up to? Has their work changed in the last 2,000 years? These are important questions for us to think through because scripture shows us how powerful demons are. 
Now, there's no reason for us to think that Satan and his demons are not among us today. Paul wrote to Timothy, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. These are later times. If Satan chose to continue hounding the early Christians, even after Jesus had won the ultimate victory on the cross, then we have to believe that Satan and his demons are still working hard to shake our confidence and hope in Christ. Satan rebelled against God, was cast out of God's presence, and throughout history has been wreaking havoc in our world. In fact, the devil is so good at wreaking havoc that Jesus called Satan the prince of this age. The entire book of Revelation talks of Earth's final days, of things yet to come. And it's very clear that even at the end, Satan and his fallen angels will still be doing their worst to destroy God's people. So we've seen that there's solid biblical evidence that demons are still around. They're tempting, deceiving, causing suffering, just like they always have. But how many of us have had an obvious run-in with a demon? I think we need to stop and think about this for a minute. Demon possession doesn't seem to be as common a problem in our world as it was in Jesus' day. Or maybe it's just hidden in our society. So where are they? And what are they doing? Are they using the same methods that they did 2,000 years ago? Or do they have different methods in a different culture? Well, one thing we can all agree on is that there's still a lot of suffering in our world. Of course, some of the suffering we see is brought on by human choices and sinful choices. But can't we let ourselves believe that some of the suffering we see is the work of Satan and his demons? Maybe this is something that you can take home with you today and discuss with your spouse or friends. It's a great topic. (laughs) If we know that Satan still wants to tear away as many people as he can from God then it's simple logic that you and I, whether you're a Christian or a spiritual choirer or you're a solid skeptic, we're targets of the devil's schemes. Give it some thought. So whether we're skeptical or in complete denial, Satan and demons do have a presence in our culture through media and art. What I find so fascinating in our culture is that it takes such extremes when it deals with the reality and presence of evil. It doesn't deny that there's evil. You know, it kind of exploits the fact that there's evil. In the media, demons are either misrepresented or trivialized, or they're portrayed as so grotesque and so powerful that adults become afraid of the dark and think that a demon is around every corner. So let me give you a few examples of these extremes. First, we're going to look at a short clip that shows a common stereotypical image of fallen angels. It's a clip from The Emperor's New Groove. I don't know if any of you have seen it. In which the character Kronk, that you'll see on the screen, is faced with a moral dilemma. Mission accomplished. You're not just gonna let him die, are you? My shoulder angel! Don't listen to that guy. He's trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. I'm gonna lead you down the path that rocks. Oh, come off it. You come off it. You, 
You, you, you, infinity. <laughs> Listen up, big guy. I got three good reasons why you should just walk away. First reason. Look at that guy. He's got that sissy stringed instrument. We've been through this. It's a harp, and you know it. Oh, right. That's a harp. And that's a dress. Whoa. Reason number two. Look what I can do. What? What does that got to do with anything? No, no. He's got a point. Listen, you guys. You're sort of confusing me, so, uh, be gone. Or, uh, or, uh, however I get rid of you guys. That'll work. <laughs> You've probably seen similar portrayals of fallen angels. Uh, I tried to find the Tom and Jerry one that I remember from my childhood, but I just could not find it. These portrayals are far from the reality of actual demons and the evil work that we do. You know, if we compare it to what we've learned from Scripture this morning, it's just, it's not even close. In pop art, many artists use highly sexualized images of scantily clad winged women to portray fallen angels. I'm not going to provide any images of this, uh, but trust me, they're common. While such provocative images might minimally symbolize Satan's power to tempt men through lust, they're hugely problematic because they objectify women and are far from an accurate biblical portrayal. The other extreme in our culture is to imagine fallen angels or demons as ferocious beasts. TV shows, movies, comics, books, tattoos, art. They are all venues that draw grotesque images of hairy, animalistic demons with blood-dipped teeth, three-inch claws, and fiery eyes. Psycho thrillers have a big box office draw because some people want to be creeped out by images of demon-possessed children or psychotic killers on a rampage. While these images capture the fearsome influence that demons have, they're inaccurate because they give demons far too much power and allow for no response but fear. Fear is a natural human reaction to what we've learned about today. They do have great power, Satan and his demons. They can cause terrible suffering, and they will do anything they can to separate people from God. But we shouldn't let ourselves get stuck in fear. In the Bible, we will find that there is enough power, hope, and promise for us and in us to abolish fear and live confidently. I promise you good news. Well, here it is. Now it's time to return to scripture for that good news, to grasp the knowledge that will abolish our fear of Satan and his angels. Here's the first piece of good news. God's power is greater than all the combined powers of Satan and his angels. Two weeks ago, David taught us that angels are not all powerful or omnipotent like God is. God created angels, and he created them with limited power. This includes Satan and his demons. Fallen angels may be more powerful than humans, but their power is vastly overshadowed by God's power. There's a common heresy in our culture that often plays itself out on our movie screens. We could use Star Wars or Harry Potter or even The Lord of the Rings as examples. These films are epic struggles between the forces of good and evil, darkness and light. 
But in each story, the viewer doesn't know which force will win in the end because the power of good and evil is equally matched. This idea is called dualism, and it is not the reality that Scripture teaches. In the Bible, Satan and his angels have to submit to the power of God because God is the Almighty. There's clear evidence of this in the Gospels. Remember our discussion of that man who was possessed by a demon named Legion? Jesus commanded that the demons leave the man, and so they went out of him, possessed a group of 2,000 pigs, ran down the hill, and drowned in a lake. When the man was free of the demons, his neighbors saw him dressed and in his right mind, and Mark says, the people were afraid. When I first read the story, I thought, what? Why were they afraid? Isn't this a good thing? Shouldn't they be like, wow, Jesus is amazing? But no, they were afraid. And they were afraid because they saw that Jesus had the power to cast out demons and to heal the mind and body of a man that the human beings couldn't keep bound in iron chains. They were afraid because they saw one man whose power overcame the combined power of 2,000 demons. The power of God can and always will overcome the power of Satan and his demons. You might say, well, Good for Jesus. What? Uh, but that doesn't make me feel any better if I were to have a run-in with a demon. Well, if you're thinking that, then keep listening. We're about to get to you. Luke 9.1 says that Jesus gave his disciples the power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick. The disciples were sent out to minister. And when they reported back, They came back to Jesus and they said joyfully, Lord, even the demons to us in your name. It's important to note that it wasn't just the 12 disciples that Jesus empowered. So often we see these original 12 disciples as some kind of super disciples, the likes of which we could never live up to. But the truth of scripture is that Jesus empowered first the 12 and then 72 more. And then before he ascended to heaven, he commissioned his followers to continue this pattern of empowerment across all nations. You may not have been personally commissioned by Jesus, but if you've given your heart to Christ, then you are his disciple. And you have the same power and authority as the first disciples. The power that is in you is greater than the power of the demons. How can I be sure? Well, I have it on good authority, biblical authority, that when a person gives their life to Christ, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Peter Peter preached, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, For all whom the Lord our God will call. The Holy Spirit is our promise. Like a seal embossed on a legal document, the Spirit is the seal that God is in us. The Holy Spirit is the one who dwells with us and empowers us in a world where Satan and his demons wreak havoc. The Holy Spirit is God in us. The comforter who can calm our fears of Satan and the demons. 
the intercessor who helps us resist the work of the devil. With God in us, there's no need to fear. I have to ask this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If the presence and empowerment of the Holy Spirit is not enough good news or not good enough news to abolish your fear of Satan and his angels, then here is the holy trump card. God already has the victory over Satan and his angels. Jesus won the battle against Satan when he died for our sins on the cross. Jesus proved himself the one true almighty God when he rose again. Satan is defeated. But here's our challenge. We live in an in-between time. Jesus has won, but we're still waiting for his return. And though the devil knows that he is lost, this tenacious deceiver is still busy. He hasn't strayed from his purpose in separating people from God. While we may not see Satan and his demons often with our eyes, there's certainly enough suffering, persecution, and destruction in our world to indicate that they're still on the prowl. Satan, he just can't stand to think of the day, that day in the future, when every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, we can be encouraged because the end of the story has been revealed. Revelation tells the story of what is to come. It says this, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations to gather them for battle. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus defeated Satan through the cross and resurrection, but Satan hasn't given up. But we know without a doubt that Satan cannot win the final battle because he's no match for the almighty God. We know without a doubt that Satan will not win the final battle because we have the unimpeachable proof of Scripture. That is an awful lot of good news. Let's just take a moment to bask in it. I hope that this message has done two things for you today. First, I hope it painted a clear biblical picture of the reality and work of Satan and his angels. Second, I hope that this message has infused you with confidence that the good news of the Bible has abolished any fears that you might have about the power of Satan and demons. You may still have some questions. I know that I do. I'm as much of a learner as you are. But we're still in the middle of a five-part series, and I don't want to steal David or Dwayne's thunder. So I'm only going to deal with one last question today. What can we practically do in response to this message? And I have two answers to give you. I imagine there may be some lingering skepticism, fear, or concern about the power and presence of Satan and his demons in our world. We know that Satan is trying to separate us from God, 
and that he has all kinds of weapons to use against us. So this is what we need to do. We need to put on the full armor of God so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. Read the word of God. It is the sword of the spirit. The more you read the word, the more you will know God in Jesus, the better soldier you will become. So when you go home today or around your dinner table tonight, read and discuss the armor of God, which is found in Ephesians 6. It's also on the back of your sermon notes. Talk with your family, your friends, your accountability partners, and tell them how you might need help and support in resisting temptation. Here's our second response. Worship. There is nothing that delights God more and defeats Satan more than when we worship God. When we stand and raise our voices and worship together, we are declaring that Satan and his demons, we're declaring to them that we belong to the Almighty God. The one, true, all-powerful God is here with us. God lives in us and strengthens us with his Holy Spirit. Remember, The God that we worship has already won the battle. So let's stand and worship the victor. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, you are good. And you love us. And you care about us. And you protect us. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for being in us. Thank you for revealing the future to us so that we can live this life in confidence, so that we can walk boldly forward knowing that you are strengthening us, knowing that you've got our backs. Thank you, Jesus, for the gifts that you gave us when you died and for what you showed us, that you are all-powerful when you rose again. Amen.